0: I was thinking, just just before we uh, roll into uh, the word and and a few uh, special things, uh, there are are so many people who have given endless time and hours and uh, energy to see this all come to fruition. So, and I know they don't wanna be named, but I'm gonna name them anyways just to embarrass them. But um, we got, I mean, Bill Werner slaved as the GC and helped. If you could just thank him uh, loudly. Uh, We had... Uh, Phil Wells helping out with architecture, you can thank Phil. Uh, Again, yeah, keep keep it rolling for him, yes. And then, um, I mean, all the elders who uh, just served, and then, I mean, hundreds of people who gave time and and energy and volunteers. So, uh, praise God for for, uh, helping, amazing, awesome. Um, (laughs) Man. Um, I I get to talk a lot in a minute. So uh, before I get to do that, um, you know, in God's providence, he always seems to kind of land these things at specific times. And so we had scheduled Pastor Wilson to come on the 22nd of May before we knew that this was going to be the day that we would be in this building. So uh, by God's grace, we have him here. And he's uh, a man who loves Jesus. He's doing a profound work in Haiti where he is not only pastoring, but training pastors and church planters to plant more churches in Haiti. And so we've been able to uh, serve them and support them financially. And so, um, Pastor Wilson's going to come up right now and just kind of share with us a little bit about what God is doing through his ministry, what God has done through uh, church planting there in Haiti. So, Pastor Wilson, if you don't mind coming up, give Pastor Wilson a nice warm church at Bergen welcome. I'm going to give you this one. It's number three, Leo. I don't know. We're still learning stuff, so he has mic number three.
1: Hi everybody, I want to thank you so much for giving me this uh, great opportunity uh, to come here and share with you the love of God, how God is, what God is doing in Haiti, and through the ministry that the Lord chose me. Uh, I gave my life to the Lord when I was at the age of 12. And I, kick, I was kicked out from the house because I accepted Jesus Christ as a, my personal savior because I was brought up from a voodoo family. Uh, my parents on both sides were voodoo priests. And my grandfather and both sides were voodoo priests. And my, two, two of my uncles were voodoo priests as, as well. So they want me to become a third generation voodoo priest. And until the day, I heard a voice call me, and, and I went and ran and talked to my mother and find out uh, who was that person who called me. And she said, no, I, I, I don't call you. So after three times, I come to understand that it was the Lord. So there was a missionary in, in Haiti that, from, uh, that was from Wisconsin. She was there for 35 years. And I went to her while she was having a Bible study for pastors which I was not supposed to be there. It was just for pastors, but for some reason the Lord wants me to be there. So I went and uh, after the seminar, the Bible study, she make a a call and asked if somebody would like to give their life to Jesus. So I went and lay down and kneeled down and she prayed with me and I gave my life to Jesus. But after that, when I go back home, they kick me out from the house. But it was for my own good. It was for my own good because from that uh, situation, I move on and uh, uh, start a ministry. And in 1986, I started a ministry in Passion Valley Church. Uh, right now, we have over 1,200 people attending every Sunday morning. After the, the earthquake, we lost one part of the church which we are right now in the process of raising money to uh put another addition so we can have uh, because every sunday we keep having a lot of people coming. It's a big it's a big problem but it's a good problem when you can see people keep giving their life to the Lord. We have two services on Sunday morning. The first service is packed uh we don't we really don't have place for them so I am in a very, very uh, big problem right now because we are in a situation that we need to add more so we can have more people come to the church. And because Haiti is a country that we have a lot of uh, witchcraft, a lot of violence, when somebody decides to come to church, it's a good place to be. So we want you to pray for us uh, so the Lord will open the door for us soon so we can uh, have more people. I'm talking about the city, but uh, I'm not all, only in the city. Throughout the years, I started uh, six churches throughout the country of Haiti. It's not uh, like uh, super highways you have here. It's not easy to go. It's very difficult to go through those uh, places. And one church I have in Jeremy, uh, it's way behind, and Jeremy, when I'm talking about Jeremy, it's way very far south, about uh, three and a half hours to get there. And once you get there, you, uh, I have to get in a horse, And a horse back for another couple hours to go to visit those church and preach to the people. So most of those pastors there, they are pastors that don't have good uh, education. But what the Lord has been impressed with me is to, have them come and sometime I go myself I took a team with me from our church and go and preach to them and have seminars and do Bible training with them and equip them for the community where they are living so right now uh, I want to thank the church so much for supporting me we had uh, three uh, seminars three Bible training uh, with for pastors Uh, With the money that uh, the church uh, sent to me, Uh, we had uh, uh, the church come from Jeremy, they come from Latik, they come from uh, Mount Marozo, and I have pastors and deacons, we pray with them and we taught them, we feed them, and we pay the transportation to go back home. So we want you to continue praying for us because the Lord has really put the ministry very heavy in my heart. It is not something I'm trying to do, but it's something that I'm do, doing with love, with a lot of joy. I thank God so i am been able to do it. And uh, thank, I want to thank you because I'm not the only, the only one doing it. You are helping me. You are standing with me, not only with your finances, but you are standing with me with your prayers, which I need so, so much. In a country like Haiti, we need our prayers if some of you have ever been in Haiti or if you decided to come to Haiti, it is not easy. The life that we are living in in the country. So, with your prayer, we stand every day and uh, anything can happen at any time, but we believe that God is in control. That is because he has been in control in my life and uh, the ministry, the the different ministry we have in Haiti, I have a the church in, in uh, Laotig, we have 180 kids attending every, every day at school. And we have a feeding program for them. And uh, we keep training not only pastors, but we're training uh, teachers also. Because we believe the kids in Haiti, they are the hope for the future. They are the hope for tomorrow. They are the hope for many, many other years if Jesus stay. And if Jesus is not coming soon, we believe they are the church for tomorrow. So thank you so much. And my wife and our church send the greetings. And uh, I hope to see you someday in Haiti. And thank you so much. And God bless you. And may God continue to bless your ministry. And I want you to know that I'm not here by coincidence. I play the church what the Lord wants to confirm to me. I'm going to a church in Texas to visit as well. As you're moving from a place, another place to here, I'm going to another church also that's moving from another place to, to the own building. So I said, well, the Lord, maybe you're trying to tell me something. I don't know. <laughs> but one thing I know because I'm a church player, I think God is trying to confirm things with me. May God bless you and have a good day. Amen.
0: Thank you, brother. Thanks, brother. It's awesome about that. Amen. 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 Thanks, Pastor Wilson. Those were, uh, the photos that were up there was actually uh, just pictures of the church planning seminar that they taught that we uh, funded so that they could get pastors there uh, to train uh, some future church planners. So praise God for uh, his work. You know, it's... it's, um it's so amazing because you know, just being here, I remember, for the, I, some of you guys are probably here with family, friends, you're visiting, you're, some of you were just maybe dragged by uh, your neighbor and you were like, I don't know, we got this new opening at a church at a, a place behind a golf place, so I can play golf, so that's why you're here. I don't, I don't know how you, you kind of landed here, but either way, um, just to kind of give you a, a flavor, it's so humbling to, to be here, to think of, I mean, conversations I had with so many of you before um, my wife and I, we moved up a little over three years ago and knew that God was just... Just placing on our hearts that Paramus was just a, sort, just a great place for uh, gospel ministry and gospel proclamation. And, and as you look at the New Testament and see just where the Apostle Paul planted churches and looked at churches at, at cross routes and where there was heavy traffic and city centers. And, and I remember speaking to some of you guys, and uh, I remember uh, we just met randomly. God just providentially just kind of collided our paths, and, and uh, he had put on your heart. I remember speaking to Bob, and he was in the Dominican Republic praying for a church to be here, a new church. I'm in Virginia praying, and we didn't even know that God was using both of those prayers to produce this, but it's so humbling to see God unfold his plan, because uh, God has a story that he's writing. We just join it, right? I mean, this world is not our story. It's not what we're writing. God's already written the whole thing, and he lets us participate in that very thing. So we're all witnesses of a miracle. I mean, any time a church is birthed or God regenerates hearts, that's a divine miracle. So just the fact that this exists, just... You guys, most of you know all the stories from parking agreements to the landlord to him working in in ways that just seemed impossible. Um, It's not hard for him, right? When he says, I will establish my church, he does it. Um, and so what a, what a privilege to be together. Let's, let's just pray. Then we're going we're gonna to jump in, and, and, uh, and I just want to share a few thoughts that are on my, my heart today, and then uh, we're going to get back to singing and proclaiming uh, the excellencies of who Jesus is. So God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that, that we get to be here, that we get to be witnesses of your saving mercy and work. And God, we need the Holy Spirit of God to open eyes and open hearts this morning, for nothing can happen apart from you. So, Father, we praise you that you are a good Father who, in his good grace, offers forgiveness of sin and salvation to souls and rescuing from eternal dangers. Father, thank you that many of us this morning are evidences of grace, and that we get to just enjoy you together. Father, might you do whatever pleases you through your church, not just church at Bergen, but your church, God, that gathers this morning and as faithful men preach the word that people would be saved and transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. We pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, here's what I want to do. Um, you can, if you have a Bible, you can just go to the first verse in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now, normally what we do is we kind of walk through books of the Bible. We kind of go uh, line by line through books so you get the full understanding and meaning of what God is trying to say through his word. And so uh, we're not going to do that today. We're in the Gospel of Luke as a church. We're going to jump back into Luke next Sunday. Um, f- but for this morning, uh, what I want to do is I just, I just want us to sit for a minute and consider what's happening okay I I don't mean like what's going on in the world with terrorism and with you know the Dow market and with presidents being elected I mean literally sit and consider and think what is happening through the church of Jesus Christ what is God doing and what does that mean for you and me um, and I think if, if you do that, you have to see the story of God in the Bible to really appreciate even sitting in your seat on May twenty second, two thousand and sixteen, right now. So so here's what I do. Here's what I have to do just just out of the gate. Here's what we have to clarify. Um, church at Bergen doesn't save or transform anyone. Okay, so there's only one Savior, one ruling King, his name is Jesus, and he alone rescues, redeems, restores, and transforms lives. Okay, so, so, so the church of Jesus Christ, right, which is um, Church at Bergen, is a, is a smaller church of, of that universal church, we're but instruments in his hands. Right so he he uses us as his vehicle but he ultimately is the agent the active agent in saving and redeeming mankind and so uh, what i want us to see here is as you look through the scriptures you're going to see that that you're caught up in the greatest story ever written that will ever be told that will ever be finished and that's the story of god um, and if you if you look at your Bible, here's basically five kinds of ways to understand your Bible. If you break it down, five five acts or scenes. You have creation, okay, where where God establishes His kingdom, okay, and then you have the fall, Act Two, where there's rebellion in this kingdom, and then you have kind of an act or scene three, where you have the coming of the King of that kingdom in all His glory, and then you have Act Four or Scene Four, which is kind of the mission, right? God's people spreading the news of this King and His kingdom, and then you have Act 5 when it's all done, basically restoration, which is the return of that king. Okay, so you have creation, fall, redemption, mission, and restoration. If you want to just kind of understand, if you're new to Christianity or the Bible, that's what we see in the Bible, is just basically those five overarching scenes. So let's just start at Act 1, work our way through, and I want us just to enjoy this morning and revel in the reality of who we are and what we've been caught up in. That's all I want. Okay, so Genesis chapter 1, this is in Act 1 where God creates, God establishes his kingdom. Genesis 1 verse 1 says this, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so take a deep breath and realize you didn't exist, right? You weren't fixing things. You weren't wiring planets into orbit. You weren't telling stars to create themselves. You weren't establishing anything. You didn't even exist, and God was fully satisfied and fully happy, and God decides in his infinite wisdom and infinite creativity and infinite perfections to create. And so he starts making things. He starts creating things. He starts making plants and animals and trees and water and, and the galaxies in the world, right? He, he starts making everything out. Now, here's what you got to get, though, is as you follow the scriptures, you'll see the primary reason God creates is so that all that is inside of him, his infinite perfections, his infinite worth, his infinite glory would be enjoyed, worshipped, and celebrated. And as you, as a finite person, get caught up in enjoying all of his infinite perfections, you find the maximum joy possible. That's why he created. Here's the thing. Some of you guys may have been taught that God was lonely. So God made us because he was lonely in his infinite perfections. Think about that. So I'll make puny, small, finite humans because I'm lonely. No, he did it for our joy in his great glory. And, and as you go, as you kind of track through the scriptures and kind of see all of this kind of unfold, you got to read the Bible one of two ways. Right, You either see the Bible as this is a, basically a handbook for how you live. So should I cuss? I don't know. Should I drink alcohol? I don't know. Should I marry them? Are they cute? Do they need to love Jesus? Do they need to see R-rated movies or PG movies? I mean, you can have it all listed out. No, it's either that, a handbook about you and how you're supposed to function and live. And I'm not saying that there aren't good commands from God that we should look at and examine and obey. But otherwise, it's also, or otherly, a book about God and what he wants to do, and the story he's unfolding, and him wanting and desiring glory for himself. And you find, if you read the Bible, that from beginning to end, this book will unpack the latter. That really it has little to do with you and everything to do with the story that God is writing. And if you come from that vantage point, if you can sit there, you'll see this is what drives the universe. Not that you be saved or lost or be happy or poor or wealthy. What drives the universe, what drives this book that God wrote is that he would be magnified in his infinite being. Like that's what you're going to see. So, so here's what happens as, as we keep going. As he creates things and animals and plants, he starts saying it's very good. And then he gets done on the sixth day and he says it's very, very good. Why does he say that? Because he's flexing his glory. Because Psalm 19 will say that these heavens declare the glory of God. That his handiwork shows his manifold wisdom. Amazing. And then he creates you and me. And when he creates you and me, it's different from the plants, different from the animals, Different from the water, different from the trees. Look at verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So here we see the Trinitarian God involved in making human life that is infinitely valuable because the God who made them in his image is infinitely valuable. So so listen, this is not happenstance. This is not people just showing up from something. This is not the unintelligent making intelligent or the impersonal making personal. This is the absolutely personal, active, triune God that made all things making valuable life. Made in whose image? God's. So life is sacred. Life is by God's design. And we're made in the image and likeness of God. So every single human being has dignity, value, and worth. Unlike our performance-based culture that says your worth is based on how attractive you are, how much money you make, or where you live, or your socioeconomic status. Everyone is infinitely valuable because you're made. That's what the scriptures teach. Because of whose image you're made in the likeness of. But this is gonna lead us. Everything's great at this point. You got Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. There's R&B rolling, they're eating fruit. They're naked, unashamed, great, great world. Then act two comes in, the fall, rebellion in the kingdom. You hit Genesis three. God is with man in all his glory. There's perfect fellowship. He only gives one restriction. Hey, have at it. Eat anything you want, just not from that one tree, or you'll die. Okay, this is, this is, this is a great gift from God. Hey, do anything you want, just don't kill yourself right? I mean, so many people think God is a cosmic killjoy that he wants to rob from you. If you look from the beginning of time, he's the most generous God. He says, look, I've given you this whole garden. I've given you my glory, my perfect fellowship, unbridled perfection with me. You can have whatever you want. Just don't do this. It's like a good parent, right? Lots of freedom, little restrictions, Maybe. Some of you guys are like, oh, i put tons of restrictions, little freedom. Okay, well, maybe that's why your kid's crazy. Okay, so, so here, let me, let me help you out. So you need to have lots of freedom, little restrictions, so that you can, you can grow in that. So God does that just like any good dad, good father. He gives all of this freedom for mankind, just gives them one small little caution. Hey, don't kill yourself. Genesis 3, look at what happens, verse 1. Genesis 3, verse... Chapter 1, verse 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field. This is Satan. This is Lucifer. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. It's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they sued fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence. That's actually glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. Among the trees in the garden. Okay, so God gives one restriction. What do they say? They buy the lie that every single human being will buy the lie of which started with Adam and Eve, which is I want glory for myself. I don't want to give it to God. Because God made his kingdom to give him glory, and I don't want him to have glory. I want to worship myself, and everything revolves around me. I'm the center of the universe. And so in that very act of rebellion, sin enters human history. And they buy the lie from Satan that says God is not good. God is a cosmic killjoy he's trying to take, not to give life, not to lead into green pastures. God's out to steal from me. And they eat the fruit. Now, some people say, guys, look, this is where you have to get your, your understanding of, of this book. Some people say, man, I just don't know that, I, that God knew that they were going to eat that fruit. I mean, I think he was just, I mean, listen, God knows what's going to happen. He wrote it. Like God's not up in heaven going, are you kidding me? I can't believe you ate that. Like, that's not what he's saying. He he has the the, the plan already from eternity past. He knew there was going to need to be a deliverer, a redeemer, a restorer, and that's what's so beautiful about the story of God. In this fundamental sin of man, we have this. All that you are, all that was given to you, all that you possess, all the good gifts God gives are for God and for the glory of God. So when you take all of his gifts and you abuse them and you use them like you bought them and you own them and you use them only for you, that's called I. Idolatry, that's called self worship. And you run in the cul de sac of self worship where your entire life is frustration, not fullness of joy, not fullness of satisfaction. You got temporary peace, temporary joy, but you keep hitting the wall over and over and over, trying to break free in some way, but you can't because the only things you know is to use the gift itself and not enjoy the maker of the gift. And, and, and that's, that's the fundamental sin of the universe. That's the cosmic treason that we have all committed, that humanity has committed, that is all entering the scene here. And so what's amazing is right now humanity falls, and there's sin, death, fracture, and chaos that ensues, and they realize their sin, and they look for a covering. And they find fig leaves, and the rest of human history is about you trying to cover up your shame other ways other than Jesus. So, you got fig leaves. So, you've got your resume, you've got your career, you've got where you live, you've got everything bolted up. So, no one really gets to know the real you. You don't want to have to confess sin. You don't want to have to let people in on who you really are. All those secret, cyclical things happening, you just keep secret inside the box that is you. And that's your fig leaf. And we respond just like Adam and Eve, we hide. And here's what's amazing. In the middle of this, God decides to preach the first gospel ever spoken. And here's what he says in verse 15 of chapter three. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God's just explaining someone is going to come and restore the brokenness from the fall of humanity because now fellowship with God is fractured the perfect gl- gl- glory of God is as we're supposed to enjoy him is fractured because Adam and Eve want worship of themselves and not to worship God and so here you have him saying hey there is a line that's going to come Eve through your line through your seed and it's going to be this one who's going to deliver going to restore what you guys screwed up He's going to cover your shame, cover your nakedness. He's going to bring you back into a restored union with me where you enjoy my glory to its maximum height. Amazing. So this promise of redemption for man and woman enters as soon as death, division, chaos, and darkness ensue. And God speaks into the middle of all that. And the rest of this book is God bringing back humanity for one purpose, to bring him glory. But here's what you'll see. Constantly throughout salvation history, the people rebel and don't want to be with him and don't want to give him glory. God will constantly say, come back to me. I'm a good God, and your greatest satisfaction is in bringing me great glory and being with me in my glory. And they keep rebelling. They keep sinning. They keep wanting to see this over and over and over. And so Genesis 6, God uses a guy named Noah, some of you guys are familiar with. If you grew up in church, right, and he says, hey, Noah, go tell the people, turn back to God, repent to God. He's a good God who, who loves his created people and offers restoration, and people don't want it. So God says, fine, I'm going to start over. So he brings the flood, wipes out humanity, minus Noah and his family, and God reestablishes the people. They start growing. Later in Genesis 12, you've got a guy named Abram. He's a hundred-something-year-old man, and God comes to him and says, hey, okay, look, I'm going to, I know you're a hundred-something years old. I know your wife's barren and can't have children. I'm going to do a miracle through your wife, Sarah. I'm going to give you a child, and through your child is going to be that line. Remember Genesis 3, that deliver I promised that was going to come and restore all this, make all things new, who's going to permanently cover your nakedness and shame in your sin of self-worship? I'm gonna. That's gonna come through your line. That's gonna come through your children's children, and also a great nation is gonna come from you, where everyone's gonna see you and say, "Man, that God is awesome! Look at His glory! Look at the weight of His infinite perfections!" And so, if you track through Old Testament history, you've got all these things happening, and Abraham and Sarah have a child named Isaac, right? Isaac and Rebecca have a child. Um, I think Jacob and Esau, uh, Jacob has 12 sons, right? One of those 12 sons is Joseph. Joseph sold into slavery. He becomes a leader next to Pharaoh. Eventually he passes, and Pharaoh starts oppressing God's people, the Israelites. And then what does God do? He comes to a guy named Moses and for the first time reveals his glory since the garden. And he says, hey, Moses, you're going to be my deliverer. You're going to go free my people from slavery, right? So he sends Moses in. Moses goes in and says, hey, let my people go. Plagues come. They eventually leave, cut the Red Sea in half. They get towards the land of promise. They're heading towards the land of promise. And you get to Moses in Exodus 33 where God tells him, I'm going to call my people back to myself to show them my glory and I'm gonna show Moses you my glory so you can show others. He says, hey, you're gonna hide in this cleft of a rock, and I'm gonna pass by you, and I'm just gonna let you see my back because if you see my face, you'd be incinerated because my glory is so beautiful. It's so weighty. Look at what he does next in Exodus 34, verse five. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. He's in the cleft of the rock. And proclaim the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed before him and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. By the way, this is the first time God has ever announced or described his name. Look at how he's describing himself. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the children's children will by no means clear the guilty to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. (laughs) God's revealing a morsel, a grain of sand of his infinite perfections and what does Moses do he worships God not himself he sees that that's what he should be caught up in and wrapped up in and that's where all of his joy and affections and thoughts should be laid and Moses worships I say this all the time God is not a weak God like he doesn't make you get saved like he just has to reveal himself Like when you see the glory of God seen in the personal work of Jesus, that's how you get saved. Like like he doesn't have to make you. When you really see him in all that he is and all that he's been revealed through scripture and all of his good commands leading to joy and peace, that he is your righteousness for you, that he takes the full wrath of God towards you in your sin, that he incurs all of your debt, pays it in full, that you have a champion at the end of eternity who stands for you and wins you righteousness, man, you worship him. You say, that's for me. I realize that this cul-de-sac of self-worship is permanently broken, and I can't escape it outside of the personal work of Jesus. And so if you keep reading, Moses eventually comes down with the Ten Commandments. His face is glowing. People see it. They're in wonder. And he keeps, in his grace, calling the people back. To be a people marked, but not by self-worship, but glorifying God. It doesn't last long. You guys know the story. Before we know it, they're forging other gods, making other idols. So then God decides to fill a spot with his glory, right? He says, hey, can you guys make a tabernacle? Be this kind of my glory of God is going to dwell there in this tabernacle. And if you know the, the, the continued story, people keep complaining, hey, man, we're, we're hungry. And God's like, I just gave you food from heaven that you ate. I'm thirsty. I just had you touch a rock and water came out. I mean, what else do you want me to do? Like, he just demonstrates over and over again that he's a good God, that he cares for his people. So in the book of Numbers, they all kind of die out in the wilderness for 40 years. And then eventually, Joshua's the guy who leads them in, right? He's the one who is faithful, part of the remnant that leads them in. He sets up judges. The people go, God, I don't like your judges. I want, we want our own king. God says, okay, fine. Here's Saul. They hate Saul. Then you have David. Then you have Solomon. Then he says to Solomon, hey, I want you to build a temple now. My glory's going to dwell in the temple, In 1 Kings. So so all the while, through kings, judges, all of this structure, here's what you have, God. In the middle of all of this seasons of Old Testament history, he sends these guys called prophets. Okay, throughout that whole time. And all these prophets are saying the same thing. God is infinitely weighty in his glory, and if you would turn to him and enjoy his glory and worship him rightly, there would be fullness of joy. And if you turn from him in your sin and have self-worship and worship what you've made instead of him, you will find anger, bitterness, emptiness, frailty, continued fracture, continued, you know, just endless, 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 endless lack of fulfillment. And they just keep saying it over and over and over and over and eventually God's glory leaves by the time you get to Ezekiel because they're back to worshiping false gods. They start actually like spray painting idols in the temple. And here's the, here's the grand meta narrative question. Here's what we're all faced with. What's God going to do next? I mean, his glory left. I mean, what, how is he going to choose to display his glory? How is he going to call people back to himself? How are we going to understand the answer for all of this? And that's where Act three turns a corner of the coming of the king. God's sovereign, <laughs> unrelenting plan from eternity past is my son. And you're going to see in my son the very radiance of my glory. So after all of this, God sends Jesus. Hebrews 1 says this, For he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Christ, Jesus Christ, is the very glory of God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what his character is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know his heart, his compassion, his judgment, his, look at Jesus. So after all of this, God sends the incarnate Son of God in human flesh. Amazing, right? If you've been in, in church background, you, you know the story. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke, how he comes through the Virgin Mary, and, and he lives a sinless life, and he is teaching and preaching and proclaiming and healing and teaching about this kingdom of God that will come, that he is actually this deliverer that was promised back in Genesis 3. And most people don't believe him, don't want him. They're still stuck in the love of either religion or their, their other wants, right? So we know that religion is something you do for God, but Christianity is about something God does for you. And so all these religious people love what they do. They love how much they t- attend church and pray and read the Torah and Jesus is going hold on a second righteousness isn't found there it's found in me because I am the only thing that could redeem you and restore you back to right fellowship with God, right enjoyment of God and his glory. And so you have here Jesus Christ come, and here's what's insane. You have history repeating itself the same way it did since the garden, the same way the people reject God and his glory and giving him glory, they reject Jesus, who is the glory of God. amazing i think what john chapter 9 jesus heals the man born blind and what happens all the religious leaders get him and go hold on hold on! what really happened to you he goes man i don't know all i know is my whole life i couldn't see and now i see <laughs> right no 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 no. what really happened did you have some magic pixie dust did you go to some you know witch on the corner and get something magic for your eyes no i jesus of nazareth i don't know he came behind he healed me where right? you got lazarus in john 11 right Right, where, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and what happens? I mean, people see this miracle and they're, they're thrilled. And in, by John chapter 12, the religious leaders get so mad because now people want to worship and follow Jesus and not them. Again, the cycle of self-worship and self-gratification and idolatry. And you have it all repeating itself all the way back again where they go, hold on. Let's just kill Lazarus to cover up the evidence even though he was just brought back from the dead. You see the heart of man in this way. And Jesus sums it up well. Look at Matthew chapter 21. Jesus tells a parable. I love this parable. Matthew 21. Then we're going to turn the corner to act four. And then we're going to wrap it up. 21 verse 33. Here another parable. Jesus spoke in parables a lot. They're basically ways that he could explain theological truths. That's, that's what he does through parables, through stories. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he said to his servants to the tenants, to go get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. <laughs> Finally, he sent his son. To them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? We'll stop there. Jesus says here, Israel. What's going on with you guys? I've sent messenger after messenger after messenger, and all you do is beat them up, kill them, or stone them. So surely if I send my son, you'll respect him, right? And what do they do? They crucify him, right? And then he says, what do you think the master of that son is going to do when he comes back? a warning right this is the climax of it all i mean i gave you the garden man i gave you noah i gave you moses i gave you prophets i gave you the land of promise i gave you my own son you've had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn as i have called you back to right union with me to worship me in my glory in the fullness of my glory and I'm going to return one day. And those who reject my son, who turn from my son, who join in the mocking, we know there is eternal punishment, right? If we know the scriptures. Jesus is saying, don't you see the kindness of God, the patience of God throughout history? That he even sent his very son. That, that, is, that is it. He's doing the ultimate which was always his plan to send the very glory of himself in his incarnate son, Jesus, to win back a people for his own possession. (laughs) And the scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ goes to the cross for us in our place to pay for this fundamental sin of the universe that we can't get out of, which is the cul-de-sac of self-worship. Now here's why this has to happen. Here's why Jesus has to come and why the very radiance of the glory of God has to invade human history to buy us back to God and restore that broken relationship. Um, Because you were not created to worship you. Like you weren't made to find deepest joy and satisfaction in you. So what happens is when you operate in your world and everything you do, everything you push for, everything you chase, everything you exhaust yourself for is to find the deepest level of joy and contentment and satisfaction in you, what you can build in your kingdom. That's why you constantly find yourself hitting a wall or hitting a ceiling, it not being enough and why it just attacks your temper, attacks your rage, attacks your addictions. You chase some other compulsion. You just keep putting Band-Aid on after Band-Aid on until you see the sovereign God of the universe incarnate his son and see him taking all of that for you which causes in your heart worship to Jesus who is the very glory of God and that becomes your satisfying portion. No matter what happens in life, you're okay. Death, you're not afraid of. Other things, suffering because he's with you. He's a perfect high priest. He has endless grace. You're not welcomed into the kingdom because of how you perform, how many prayers you pray, or your merit or your duty. It's solely based upon the person who of of Jesus, and the true regenerated person who sees that wells up in worship and is causing in his heart worship to God, and he's found. He's finally found. That's what it means to be lost and then found. You actually find the glory of God again. You actually find what your soul's been aching for after years of searching. And he illuminates the hearts and minds and saves Amazing. And this leads us into Act Four, spreading the news of the kingdom. Because here's the question Jesus dies, bears the weight of sin, kills it, rises, ascends, gifts his Holy Spirit. So Jesus ascends. So, how does God want to display his glory? What does he want to do? What does he want to use? There's no temple anymore. There's no tabernacle. He wants to use his church. Did you hear what I just said? He wants to use you and me. Just sit in that for the next three years. Right? He could have done anything. He could have chosen to do anything. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 6, for we are the temple of the living God. When he saves you and rescues you, he gifts you his Holy Spirit. And you are now a testifying voice and picture of the glory of God. Colossians 1 says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, God's saying, you've seen all these things externally that have been displaying my glory and calling people back. Now, in some unbelievable divine way, the glory of God is going to be manifest internally in the church, in the people of God. That are now, by the way that they live, by the way that they function, by the way that they gather, by the way that they love Jesus, there is some way the Holy Spirit of God is testifying to the glory of God through his people, through the church. Oh, goodness. I mean... I... So this is why we're on mission, you're spreading the news of this good king and his glory because you can, because that's what he's done in regeneration and in the story he's writing and he will continue to write, he's asked you to participate in the role of redemption. You are not saving anyone, you are literally being used by God as he saves and redeems people in the grand story of redemption, that is always his story, not ours, and we are floored that he would even let us us for 24 hours participate in this story and you worship and you thank God we are the vehicle he's chosen to display the God who created the God who sent the flood the God who sent prophets the God who sent his own son who healed men born blind and raised the dead to life and healed diseases and that God is saying you are going to display my glory. And that leads us to Act 5. where We're going to land the plane. And I want to wrap all this up for us so we understand. You get to Revelation, and there's lots in Revelation, but it ends with this, the last chapter of the Bible. God says this in Revelation 22, verse 7. So I are gonna go there. It says this. It says, and behold, I am coming soon. <clears throat> Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, John's the one who's given this prophecy, who's writing the book of Revelation. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Have you ever noticed that in Revelation 22? Do you ever ever read a passage you're like, hold on a second. You keep going back. This is amazing. God is saying, I've had this plan to restore a people for my own possession from eternity past and bring them back to enjoying my glory and celebrating my glory. And here is John with an angelic being. (laughs) And he's worshiping this being because he's communicating this revelation. And God's going, hold on a second. Jesus is going, hold on a second. You don't worship them, you worship God. Like, like it all rolls back to the original plan and purpose of God, worshiping him, being found in him and his great glory. I mean, it's amazing that you see here, it's been a story about me and no one else. It's always been about me and my glory and what I'm doing in the world, and you're just participating in it, and it's an unbelievable joy and gift to participate in it. I mean, amazing. That's why, man, we don't want anybody worshiping church at Bergen. Right I mean, Church at Bergen, every local church is but a deflection to the one who is the glory of God. As people see in the church, the glory of God made manifest. It's not to worship people or make much of man, it's to make much of Him. And so it rolls off of us onto Him, and people worship God just like back in the Old Testament as he chose Israel and says, "As they see you, we want them to worship me as, they, God, as people see the church, we want them to worship Him. Where people can be restored in their soul and be found and have everlasting water and eat of bread that satisfies endlessly. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the thirsting, the water that you come for for thirst that never quenches your soul or never doesn't quench your, satisfy your soul. Endless, it's endless. It's an amazing, amazing thought here. And so Jesus alone does this. Now, some of you, why am I saying all this today? Some of you thought, some of us thought we were just doing church. That's why. Do you understand that like church is not like spiritual shopping for the week? Like it's not like I do my private devotions then I come with a bunch of people and do them together. Like, or I just learn a few nuggets about this and I put it in my shopping cart and I roll it out and I use it for the week and then I come back. That's not what the gathered people of God is. That's not what's happening here. That's not all that's going on. Because we do not gather for so much what it does for you and me. We gather for what it does for God. And when you start to understand that, you t- begin to turn the corner on mine bending glories because you find yourself caught up in something so much bigger than you that God has asked his church to be called into something which is being a visible display of the character and nature of a holy, righteous God who dwells in infinite perfections who when people find him and worship him and give him glory are deeply satisfied and most joyful. That's what's going on right now. Literally by us gathering, we are a testimony to the glory of God. We testify to the glory of God. Now, what this means for us is the Christian life becomes so much more than you just sustaining your moral effort and, and producing virtues and avoiding vices. How boring is that? I mean, the, the good news is not that you get to be a nicer person or a better person or a cuter church attender. <laughs> that, that's not good news. <laughs> and some of you guys have tried it and you're like, yeah, that's not good news. <laughs> the good news is that Jesus is your champion who wins righteousness for you. As we stand in Revelation, all people, all times going, man, I am going to need someone to stand in my place because I am naked, I am unveiled, I got no fig leaf to cover me. Everything is laid bare, the God of all things sees it all. I need someone to step in and win righteousness for me because I can't do anything to earn a place with him. And Jesus steps in for those of us that trust Jesus alone to be clothed with his righteous fig leaf. And it's warm. And it's enduring. And it's joy-filling. How does this affect your day-to-day life, guys? It affects every part of it. Because your worth and status has absolutely nothing to do with what you do, but why you do it. That's awesome. Because the thing at stake is not what you do; it's God's glory. That's the big deal. The status isn't a big deal. God's glory is a big deal. I'm going to read a text, and then we're going to we're going to close. This is a um, this is a, a a pastor gave this quote. It's a great quote, and I think it helps pull everything together. I Forgot to throw it on the screen, so just listen. God created us in His image, so that we would be in, that we would image forth His glory in the world. We were made to be prisms refracting the light of God's glory into all of life. Why God should want to give us a share in shining with his glory is a great mystery. Call it grace or mercy or love. It is an unspeakable wonder. Once we were not, then we existed for the glory of God. Therefore, it is the duty of every person to live for the glory of God. And what does this mean? It does not mean to make him more glorious. It means to acknowledge his glory, value it above all things, and make it known. This is the only reason why God wants a local church in Paramus. It's the only reason. Not so that you'd find more friends, although that's a great byproduct. Not so that you would enjoy a new place, but so that he might, in his own good pleasure, plan, and will, display more of his glory to more people for the resounding fame of his name. And so we are in the middle, right? You have the first gospel, gospel preached in Genesis 3. You have the final gospel preached in Revelation 14 by an angel. And we're in the middle called to go and tell and preach this good news of the glory of God. We are deeply valuable. We were given his very image. We have infinitely valuable life. And when we sinned, he gave us his son and then calls us to play a role in the story of redemption in the year 2016. God, help us. Lord, thank you that you're a, a God that, that loves us, that you're a God who enjoys worship. God, thank you that you're a God who demands it and exists for that. Thank you that, that in you we do find endless pleasures at your right hand, endless joy, God, would you encourage weary hearts this morning? Those who came in feeling discouraged or with just the pile of performance weighing on them, would you free them as they look at your son who hung, died, and rose so that they'd be freed from performing and acting and meriting? God, I pray for any in this room who do not know the saving work of Jesus that you would graciously kindly restore them they would see the forgiveness of sin in Jesus, that they would repent of their sin and turn to you and be reconciled to a God and enjoy giving you glory God would you reframe our hearts our minds, God we pray for your church we pray that it would be a church that would be a visible display of the character and nature of a great God we pray that for church at Bergen, we pray that for Local churches all over this state and this nation, and God, we pray that you be glorified as we sing right now and and declare to you these great glories, In Jesus name.